Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. Now, one question for you, my friend. Have you watched any old movies lately? You know, in fact, I did. I just watched The Lost Boys a couple Friday nights ago. I was nursing this fever and it was like, well, wait a minute. I'm sorry about the fever. Are you feeling better? Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling much better. But anyways, nursing this fever. No, no, actually just back to the movie here. um, (laughs) Did you feel, I want to know, did you feel like the movie dragged a bit? Like were there long scenes that just didn't hold your attention? (laughs) You know, it's strange because I remember the Lost Boys. I loved it when it came back out in 1987. It was I went and I saw it twice in the movie theaters, two separate dates. Awesome. wasn't wasn't fording a fever then, you know. But anyway, but no, I, I, it was great. It was exciting. It was fun. At least that's how I remember it. Had this great soundtrack too. Yeah. But when I was watching it, it was it felt slow plotting in many of the scenes i mean you know this motorcycle scene that just went on and on and on yeah oh, but i mean even keith sutherland it's just the, the great Kiefer son couldn't, couldn't you know make it kind of sing for me anymore i don't know do you think that is because like maybe you just have become more accustomed to the way movies and videos are crafted today you know with dialogue built around shorter sentences and more frequent cuts and much faster action hmm, you know Definitely. It probably is. It probably played a role in kind of how I view that and and other older movies, right? Plus, I'm just older. You know, I'm sure that has something to do with it. (laughs) Let's not dwell too much on that. (laughs) (laughs) I think our guest on today's podcast would agree, uh, maybe not about the older part, but the fact that we are living in a world that is faster paced and filled with many more distractions. Gloria Mark is a psychologist. She is the Chancellor's Professor at the Department of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine. She has published more than 200 scientific research articles, and we got to talk to her about her new book, Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. We talked to her about our attention spans and how, according to Gloria's research, they are getting shorter. Like much shorter, and are we in the realm of like that crazy meme about humans having a shorter attention span than a goldfish? Well, two things, Tim. First, yes, much shorter. Okay. Second, that goldfish meme, that's just crazy. It's silly, not based on science at all. So, but here's some interesting stuff. Gloria did research that measured how quickly someone would turn away from a main screen to look at an alternative screen. And she started this research, did the first one in 2004. And in 2004, the average time spent on the first screen was 152 seconds. Okay. You know, a little more than two minutes, two and a half minutes, right? In 2012, when they redid the study, that had been reduced to 75 seconds, a little oh, over a minute. Wow. And as recently as 2021, when they did this, it was now down to about 47 seconds, okay. less than a minute. Okay, ouch. I mean, that is a significant drop in a very short span of time. It is. Our attention is definitely shrinking. Also, our discussion with Gloria covered how the world is put, putting more and more distractions in our way. She went on to discuss a couple of cool ways to overcome these changes in our world. So we'll leave you with some excellent tips 
to help you find your groove if you keep listening to the show. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And the remedies for the challenges that we face, which are common to living a better life, kind of get back to things like we agree on uh, with a lot of things, intentionality, habits, routines. In our conversation with Gloria, we also got to talk about forethought, uh, or what we often refer to in Annie Duke's language as a pre-mortem. Love, love that. We also talked with her about the great concept of flow and how that works in this increasingly shorter attention span world that we live. Yeah, she suggests that flow, this idea of getting into deep, uninterrupted periods of productivity, may not be as feasible as we would like to think. That we live in a world where being in flow is nice, but doesn't or can't always happen. We wrap up our discussion with one of our favorite topics, goals and goal setting. <laughs> goals, love it. And when she said goals are the best shield against, distract against distraction, oh, oh, my heart fluttered. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? It's a solid discussion with a tremendous researcher, and we hope that you'll sit back with a very, very slow pour of your favorite attention span cocktail and enjoy our conversation with Gloria Mark. Gloria Mark, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. And uh, we're most curious about when it comes to attention, which is, is the best uh, stimulant for focus and attention, coffee or tea? Uh, well, I have to say tea because I'm a tea drinker. Uh, and I, I drink green tea. It has a little bit of caffeine, but it's enough to keep me going. And mm -hmm. I can sleep better when I drink. <laughs> ah, yeah. That's very important. Too. Very, very important. We just had a, a sleep uh, expert on, uh, did some research on sleep. And so very smart of, of that. All right. Second speed round question, Gloria. Dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite artist? Ooh, gosh. The, the artist, is this, uh, can this be someone who's no longer alive. We, we, uh, in our we are very world. good on yeah. seances and having them come and you can yeah, have dinner and around the table with the candles going. That is fine. Okay. The the ones I'm thinking of are no longer alive. Oh, that's, that's okay. That's totally great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I would have loved to have a dinner with Mark Rothko. The great wow. abstract expressionist. Yeah, and I, I would have loved to pick his brain. What what was going on in his mind when he was creating these, you know, really deep, immersive kinds of paintings? So, like red, like like just red on red on red on red on red on a canvas that's sixteen feet tall and just that. That's right, and and it just pulls you in. Yeah, and you're you're just immersed in that. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be. He would. I'll, I don't know much about him as a person, so I don't know if he'd like be a If again, we bring him back from the dead, uh, and he's yes. a, he's a great conversationalist or not. I, um, I, I also don't know, but you know, at least I would have the chance to to ask him. <laughs> That's you know, true. Or, Very like true. That. I like that. What, what were you thinking of when you did these paintings? Yeah. 
Yeah, that would that would be a good question. You you could be you could actually be the interviewer in this in this case. Uh, okay, uh, speed round, of course, which is never really a speed round. <laughs> um, on to the next question: um, Is it true that humans have a shorter attention span than a goldfish? No, unfortunately, that's uh, that's not been shown to be the case. There, there's a a lot of hype around that. Uh, I'm actually not sure how that original statistic came about, but no, no, that's that's been debunked. In one in one attribution, I saw that it came from a Microsoft study, and I was thinking, what in the world would Microsoft do with it? You know, why would they do that? It just seems so silly. Yeah, I I had read that too. I I don't know how that. Yeah. I thought they were just looking at me and then um, saying, well, Kurt definitely has a shorter attention span than a goldfish. So, all right, Gloria, last, last speed round question. Is it true that we lose focus almost always because of external interruptions and almost never due to self-interruptions? That's false. Yes. There so was a it, great it, it, in the <laughs> book about this. It's like, it blew me away. It's like 54, 46, something like that. And I can't, you know, yeah. can you can you expand on that just a little bit? Sure. I mean, we, we found in our research that people are just as like, almost as likely to self-interrupt as they are to be interrupted from something external, like a notification, a phone call, you know, person coming in the room. And, you know, if you're observing someone and you're, you know, they're, writing very intently in a Word document, and then suddenly they switch screens and they check email or they switch to check news. There's there's no external trigger that's making them switch. They they just switch. And you see that so often. Could be a, a memory from inside of us. You know, we remembered we have to make a phone call. Could be an urge, you know, especially these days with the news, you just have an urge to see you know, what new is going on. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why people self-interrupt habit. Of course, people have developed a habit to do it. And and it's associated with having short attention spans. It's as though we are determined to have short attention spans. <laughs> and, and if we're not interrupted by anything external, we interrupt ourselves. I, I think and, that's and, just crazy, yeah. And, and in fact, let me let me tell you uh, a study we did where we measured external interruptions and internal interruptions, and we looked at each of those on an hourly basis with with a group of participants uh, whose interruptions we measured. We find that the amount of external interruptions a person experiences in the previous hour predicts their internal interruptions in the subsequent hour. So if external interruptions go down, actually internal interruptions go up the next hour. And and that the way I interpret this is that, you know, we're we're so habituated to be interrupted that if something doesn't come from you know, come externally to interrupt us, we will go ahead and take the initiative and interrupt ourselves. Oh my gosh, this homeostasis component of the number of interruptions that we need to have. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, we're talking with Gloria about her new book, Attention Span, A Groundbreaking Way to Restore Balance, Happiness, and Productivity. And Gloria, can you help us just uh, help our listeners understand what was the impetus for you, an artist-turned-researcher, 
after 20 years of, of publishing papers to write a book on attention span. Yeah, so so I had been presenting this work in academia for a long time. And also from time to time, I had presented it to general audiences. So people who were in human resources or people in management and companies. And, you know, people were really interested in the science behind it. So I realized that it, you know, would be probably a good idea to get this out for a more general audience beyond academia. Yeah, so I began uh, trying to, I would say, to, to frame the work, you know, all these, the 20 years of work into, into a story about our attention, right, that, that can explain how, how we've changed in the digital age. And it was also on a personal level, it was also an opportunity for me to go back over my research and to try to make sense of it and try to, you know, put it into a more coherent narrative about, you know, what's been happening with our attention. I, we think you did a great job because we we actually uh, think that this this could make our our top ten books for the year. That this is just a really fantastic read, and want to encourage our readers to to nab this. Um, why why do you think we need to pay so much attention to attention? It's because it's such a scarce and precious resource. Yeah, um, you know we we use attention uh, for almost everything we do, right? You you pay attention in conversations right now we're we're all paying attention you pay attention to read to learn something uh you pay attention in the environment when you walk outside in nature so you know attention is the way we bring in information from the world yeah it <laughs> it wasn't a Danny Kahneman that said something along the lines of there's nothing more important than what we're focusing on and I'm paraphrasing at, at that moment that it's it seems like it's a pretty critical thing for us to to at least be aware of, right? Yeah. Um, the the uh, psychologist William James, who's known as the father of psychology, says, you know, we we pay attention to what we're interested in. So it's our attention is very goal directed. Mm. So if our goal is to finish writing this report, that's what we pay attention to. If our goal is to find out the latest news, we switch to the news. So as our goals change, our attention is directed yeah. in different places. Uh, I, I love that. You bring up a number of myths in the book about attention. And I know this is like asking, you know, what's your favorite child? But if you had to pick <laughs> one of those myths, in your opinion, is one more prevalent or more ingrained in our psyche than others? What's the what's the myth that just outside of the that we have a attention span less than a goldfish? Um, is is there one that stands out for you, or your top two, maybe, if, if we wanted yeah. to go there? So um, a myth that I think is pretty common is uh, the idea that people should try to achieve lengthy periods of focus, nonstop, endless focus. If you, if you were to Google this, you're going to see all kinds of companies and consultants that claim to have strategies for 
enabling people to have, you know, periods of nonstop focus. Um, it's just, it's not humanly possible <laughs> for people to have nonstop extended periods of focus. Why? Because we have these limited cognitive resources or attentional resources. And, you know, think of it as, as a tank, right? You might start your day with a full tank of resources. Maybe if you had a really good sleep, you, you're, you're starting your day with a full tank. And things we do throughout the day drain these resources. And one of those is focus. Why? Because focus involves effort, mental effort. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there are other ways of being engaged with our attention, what, what I call road attention, where you're paying attention to something, but it's kind of easy looking at social media, playing simple games, people who knit you know, you're, you're engaged, but you're, but it's very easy. Sure. We, we can do that for lengthy periods because you're not using cognitive resources, but the idea of expending the resources and, you know, focusing hard, we, we can't do that for a lengthy period. What happens instead is that we see rhythms of focus. You know, sometimes people can have a peak focus period, then they go into a valley and then another peak. Um, and that corresponds to the ebb and flow of the cognitive resources that we have available. Is there a, a typical rhythm that people tend to fall into? I know obviously there is uh, differences between individuals and contextually based, but is there a standard or a normal rhythm that we tend to, to uh, fall into? So what we've found from studying information workers or knowledge workers is that uh, the people in our sample showed two periods of focus. One was mid-morning on average, another was mid-afternoon. So it's interesting. People come into the office, they're, they're not, they don't immediately get ramped up into a state of focus, but they do smaller kinds of tasks, and it seems like they ease up into a period of focus. So... There are differences based on chronotype. So, of course, if you're an early type, you're someone who gets up at 5 a.m. I actually know someone who gets up at 4 a.m. And, you know, you're just ready to, to go. Your peak focus will be much earlier. And, of course, you'll go to sleep later. Uh, people who are late types, you know, they may not get started till noon. And so their peak focus times will be later. So what, what we found is basically an average among our participants. You bring up this idea about maybe we shouldn't always be striving for this, this idea of maximum, you know, concentration, focus, that sort of thing. And uh, it, of course, you, you, you write about flow. Mihai um, Chingsen's Mihai's work on flow is globally recognized but at some point, are there certain aspects about flow that aren't beneficial or, you know, and if we should be striving for something and it's not flow, what, what, should, be, what should we be striving for? Yeah. Well, I mean, fl flow is very beneficial, right? If you, if you can achieve a state of flow. The, the point that I make is that we shouldn't expect to get into flow for lots of different kinds of work. So I started out as an artist, and I readily got into flow. In fact, I 
I knew that every day when I would be in my studio, I was going to get into a flow state. Sometimes hours would go by and I didn't realize that, you know, it was yeah. already two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and that, that's, that's part of flow. You, you lose track of the passage of time. So you're, you're so immersed in something. Now, you know, flow can happen if you do knowledge work uh, or information work, which is what I do now, but it's not very common. And so in talking with a lot of people in, who do knowledge work, who use their devices, you know, much of the day in doing their work, uh, we can't expect people to get into flow because they're doing more analytical kinds of thinking. It doesn't mean it's any less rewarding. It's just as rewarding. It's just a different kind of experience that people have. And so if you want to achieve flow, you can do it with a hobby. You can do it with sports, playing music. And remember that flow is really a combination of using skill and being challenged. So if you're using your skill, let's say you're a tennis player and you're playing someone who's not very good. So you're not really being challenged. You're not going to get into flow. But if you're playing a competitor at your level uh, and you're really, you know, using the optimal level of skill, yes, you, you can get into flow. So, um, so it's important to consider that a lot of people might claim that, you know, watching a YouTube video, you get into flow. No, you're, you're not using your skill to do that. You're, you're engaged. You're very engaged. And it's probably very easy, you know, to watch something very entertaining, but you're not in a state of flow. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting as well, because you mentioned this earlier, you go out and you Google attention and you find all of these uh, resources and people out there saying we can get you in paying attention for 10 hours straight, nine hours straight. And I think the same thing is about flow. Like, oh, we just do these three things and you will always get into flow. And I think it leads to an aspect of, of these expectations that I'm not getting into flow and I'm doing something wrong. And what I think you point out very nicely in what you just said, but also in the book, is that we shouldn't always be striving because some of the, the tasks and jobs that we do aren't necessarily built to get us into flow, nor should they expect to always be into flow. Would you, am I misquoting you there or misstating? No, that? no, that's, that's exactly what I meant. And I also want to stress that it, it can be a very rewarding experience. Yeah to do something that's not in flow. I mean, if I'm writing something and I have to really carefully consider the language that I'm using, I go back and forth from, you know, using a thesaurus to, you know, reading other things, I'm, I'm really using analytical thinking. And then when I finish, I, I feel very rewarded, but I'm not in flow yeah. when I'm doing that. It's a very different experience. I love that, and that's okay. I mean, it's okay. It's yeah, okay. That that that's not a bad thing. Getting back to this idea of the self distractions versus the external distractions, there are some things that are that are impacting our attention span outside of us. These external things, like like film and TV effects, right? That that there are 
some broader environmental issues that do impact our attention span. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah. So, you know, I looked into the history of film and TV shot lengths, and I found that these decreased over the years, and they now average about four seconds. Mm. Uh, they, they didn't. In fact, you know, when TV first started, they would have these long takes, yeah. right? But now it averages about four seconds. Um, commercials are even shorter. In fact, length of commercials have decreased. It's it's not uncommon to find six-second commercials. They seem to have very similar kind of impact as longer commercials, which of course cost more money to present. But um, people spend a good amount of time in front of screens. They uh, Americans average about ten hours a day on a screen. Oh, wow. Part of it is computers, and you know, part of it is phones. Part of it is a TV screen. And so the fact that we experience these really short shot lengths has to reinforce our short attention spans. If, if you watch YouTube, the whole aesthetics of YouTube is around the idea of cutting out pauses, uh, using jump cuts. So you have really abrupt changes because it's believed that that's what's going to keep our attention, right? So I, I also want to emphasize that I can't say causality. I can't say that these short film and TV shot links cause our attention spans to be short. What they might be reflecting are the TV and film editors' intentions of how they can design film and TV to keep our attention. Maybe they believe these shot links have to be changing so rapidly to to keep our minds engaged. Or maybe they're influenced by their own short attention span. <laughs> so we, you know, right. we don't know, but but people are exposed to to this. Um and if you, you know, if you're watching TV, turn the volume down and then you really notice oh, yeah. these these shifts. Wow. And if you ever have the opportunity to watch a, a blockbuster film like Michael Bay's films, you will really notice the abrupt changes. Yeah. So it, I find it fascinating because a couple of things that you mentioned there. One is I um, made my kids who are 17 and 13 watch, um, oh, I can't even remember what the movie was. It was from the 70s. And they uh, um, were just bored. Uh, they, it was, it moved way too slow. The long slow. jaws, it was jaws. And I'm like going jaws. They was were bored of, with jaws. They were bored with jaws. And I was like going, how can you be bored? And it's like, well, because if you think about jaws, there's long scenes of just the ocean and nothing is happening and all of these different things. And so I, I it really resonated when you said that and, and wrote that in your book. And then the other thing I'm realizing about myself is you talk about advertisements and uh, you know, you're you're watching a video um, on on YouTube or on a, on a streaming service where they have those advertisements that come in. And if it's longer than six seconds, I am really impatient. I was like, <laughs> I, I will wait the six seconds for that commercial. But man, if you go 10, it's like I'm trying to pass that, you know, play, play, play. And, and we just I don't have the patience anymore that I think I maybe used to. I don't know. 
And I, and again, I have no question in that, but it was just a, a statement. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not just when we're on our computers that our attention spans are short, but, you know, I feel that our attention spans are reinforced by so many other things in our environments. Yeah. I wanted to, to jump to something that you talked about uh, in the book called semantic memory and how it can help us better understand our distractibility. And you use maybe, okay, I'm just going to use this as a shameless plug because uh, I've recently become a fan of Bertrand Russell and you use him as this great example of what the, illustrating the point of uh, joyous associations found in our semantic memory. So we, we don't have to talk about Bertrand Russell, even though I, I'd love to spend an hour on that. <laughs> but tell us about semantic memory, if you would, Gloria, and, yeah. and, and, why, and why this is important. Yeah, so let me actually start off by talking about the person whose idea pretty much triggered the design of the web, and that was Vannevar Bush. And he was a director of the Office of Scientific Research. And in 1945, he was running this huge organization, about 6,000 people. And at the time, information was organized according to the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> oh, yes. And, and he realized, Vannevar Bush realized that's not how humans think. Humans think in terms of associations. And so wouldn't it make more sense to simply organize information, you know, based on association? So fast forward, and that's exactly what the web does. And so in one sense, it's, it's perfect because it maps so well into how semantic memory is organized. You read a Wikipedia page, and as you're reading it, you've got all kinds of associations that come to mind. Then you come across a link, and you become very curious, right? Click on that, read another page, all kinds of associations, and your curiosity is, is piqued. And before we know it, we're, yes, we're going uh, joyriding through the web because it's just so natural for us. Can, yeah. can you imagine, this is a thought experiment, imagine if the web had been organized in a hierarchical fashion like the Dewey Decimal System. No, Would, no, I can't I, imagine that. How could we find information, right? But that's, that's how it used to be, right? But now, you know, it's just uh, too easy, in fact. So semantic memory, then, does how does that bring that back into play? So because that's, that's the semantic memory is how our minds are theorized to be organized in terms of associations. So, you know, and there's, there's decades and decades of research into it. So certain things, if you've just encountered a concept, that's going to be in the forefront of your memory. That's that will be what you recall sooner. And so when we're on when we're on the web and you you're reading something, those concepts will be in the forefront of your mind. And we make associations very naturally. It's just natural associations that we make between them and a host of other things. And you know, that's why. Sometimes you might have had the experience if you're surfing the web, you read something and it brings a new question to your mind. Mm -hmm. And you can easily access, you ask that question immediately, you get an answer, and then it brings to mind new questions, new associations. 
And the beauty of the web is that we can get access to this information to answer these questions really in milliseconds, right? It works so fast. Tim Urban, um, who has a a website called Wait But Why, and he did the fascinating um, uh, blog post on procrastination and then a TED Talk on procrastination and then a a blog post about a procrastinator doing a TED Talk on procrastination and very, very fun. But in in that uh, story, he talks about like the procrastinating mind that he has and like, Oh, I'm going to write this paper. I will look at this, you know, on the website and Google this. Oh, well, that is, there's a connection to, you know, Britney Spears. Okay. Well now I go down and Britney and now, Oh, there's this thing about, you know, uh, music from the fifties that somehow can, and all of a sudden he talks about just going down this deep rabbit hole that the initial study part on music or whatever it was on just got totally side railed because of the way that you just described the the web and i i love that because i think it describes so many of us when we are trying to focus trying not to be distracted and yet when we're out there doing it i know i find myself doing this um so what tips do you have for us who 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 want to stay focused on that paper that I have to write and yet get pulled down into the the, the weird areas of the world wide web and and uh, those instantly uh, uh, clicks that are so desirable to just go on? Yeah. So so there are strategies. There there are things we can do. But let let me start by saying. What I said earlier that w- according to William James, the you know great psychologist, attention is goal directed. We pay attention to what our goals are, and if your goal is to you know read that article or write that report, that's where your attention is going to be. And goals are the best shield, the best defense we have against distractions. Keeping your goal in mind, the problem is that our goals slip so easily. I did a research project with colleagues at Microsoft Research, and we asked people two very simple questions at the beginning of the day. The first question is, what what do you want to accomplish today? That's finding their task goal. The second question is, how do you want to feel? That's their emotional goal. And by simply answering these two questions, it brought people's goals to mind and they stayed on track better compared to a control when they didn't answer these questions. The problem is that this effect only lasted for a short while, right? Because goals slip. It's our, our minds are so dynamic. The environment is, is so dynamic that it's really important that we have to keep reminding ourselves of our goals, whatever it takes. You know, it could be you know, imagine having an agent that prompts you regularly throughout the day, or even writing down your goals, visualizing. In, in fact, uh, related to visualization, one of the things we can do is practice what's called forethought. And forethought is imagining how our current actions are going to impact our lives uh, in the future, our future selves. So imagine at the end of the day, right? Where do you want to be at the end of the day? You, you want to be relaxing. You want to be feeling fulfilled and rewarded. 
Uh, you want to be sitting on your couch reading your favorite book. And having a, a very concrete visualization of your future self can also really help you stay on track. It's good motivation for that. This, of course, makes me just think about um, Kurt and I have been reflecting on our past self versus our future self. Uh, you, you know, you, you started your educational career in art. And could you have ever imagined a future self that is in the state that you're in? Or did you? And at some point, I would have met you, you, you bifurcate from the curve and you go off in this direction to become a researcher, but... Yeah, no, at the, at the time I was an artist, uh, I only thought about art, so I, I never thought about doing anything else. But the um, I, I'm very much a believer in this idea of chance favors the prepared mind, mm. right? And uh, I think Louis Pasteur is the one who came up with that. And, you know, if you have radar up for opportunities, right? You you can be flexible, you can be agile. And, um, you know, it can't, there, there was a point when I was doing art where I realized it's really tough to make a living at this. <laughs> yeah, so I've heard and, <laughs> the musician and, in Tim says, yes. Uh. Yeah, and so I, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of other things I'm really interested in, th things that I can do among them, you know, science and math. And there's certainly a lot more job opportunities. And so it was this idea of chance favors the prepared mind that kind of opened me up to realize, you know, hey, I, here's another opportunity I can grab. So, no, I, di I didn't imagine a future self where I would be doing what I'm doing now, but it was more like seizing the opportunity in the moment and this is the path I went down. Okay, Gloria, I'm going to have to do a weird transition here. But based on that, then it wasn't foreordained that you became a researcher, uh, that you'd had some free will in this ability <laughs> to, to do this. And I'm asking that because you have a whole chapter in your book about free will, agency, and attention. And so I, I, it's a kind of a leap there. But <laughs> tell us about why why would you put a, a chapter on free will in a book about attention. Yeah. Well, of course, free free will is it's a hot issue, yes. lots of debate about it. There are arguments, of course, for determinism, arguments for free will. So you hear a lot of people putting the sole blame for our distractions on tech companies. And I, I don't want to say they're not to blame. Of course they're to blame, right? Algorithms are to blame. I, I write a lot about algorithms. But it's not the sole reason. If we're really honest, it's not the only reason why we're distracted. The, the reasons are far more complex. Mm -hmm. There's many more reasons. If it were solely tech companies and their algorithms, it, it's like we're pawns. Like we we have no agency. We're it's like we're in a pinball machine and our minds are just being, you know, jerked around from one site to another site. Uh, and I don't believe that is the case. I do believe that people can have control, can have agency over their attention. There are individual differences, for example. Personality can play a role. People who 
tend to be neurotic, which is a personality trait, have a much harder time paying attention, right? People who um, score high in conscientiousness and low in impulsivity, it's a lot easier for them to have self-regulation. These, this is independent of, you know, tech companies and their, you know, their intention to uh, hijack our attention. So, so I do think people have the, the ability to be able to, to gain agency or control of their attention. So there, there is free will. However, I also talk about this idea of uh, soft determinism. <laughs> which is that, you know, in the world, there are constraints, and we have to be aware of these constraints. And the constraints, you know, sometimes can really confine the choices we make, or sometimes they just kind of put soft borders around these constraints. For example, a, a person who grows up in poverty doesn't mean they can't achieve being a Supreme Court justice, and we and there are some justices who have done that. But by and large, it's going to be harder than someone born into wealth. And so you have these constraints on a person's circumstances, their environment. You know, we have constraints just based on our own experiences. Uh, and these constrain the, the choices we make in our actions. So that's this idea of soft determinism. And, you know, in terms of free will on when we use the internet, you know, some people ba say based on their experience are just much better at paying attention or maybe based on the nature of their work or doing something they're just inherently interested in, intrinsically motivated to do, it'll be a lot easier for them to pay attention irrespective of algorithms and notifications. I'm going to try and do another segue here because I'm curious about, I'd like to to see if we could talk a little bit about music because you gave a, a great story about um, Barry Lazarowitz, the the uh, super talented drummer worked with rock bands in the 70s and 80s, e even through recent years, I understand he's been working. But in your chapter on distractibility, you talked about rhythms. And so you went to Barry, you actually interviewed him to find out about rhythms, which I think is just novel and charming, just the, because that's what he does. He creates rhythms. What did you learn about rhythm from, from a rock drummer? Yeah, so um, I, I wanted to go to, I wanted to speak to someone whose whole life is about understanding rhythm. So one of the things I learned is how rhythm is just inherent. It's an inherent part of ourselves. He talks about how, you know, when we, we walk in rhythms, he talked about this uh, very famous conductor, Lester Lannan, who became popular because of the beats he put into his music, which made it very easy for people to dance. Even people who, you know, weren't very good at dancing, because of a very simple beat, they could move, right? We know how to walk, so we, we can move. So... Um, I also learned that rhythms can be very complex. Barry Lazarowitz gave the example of John Coltrane's masterpiece, A Love Supreme, where, you know, he, he starts off playing a melody and then he 
goes off and improvises for a really long period of time, maybe 20 minutes. And then he's able to come right back up, pick up the rhythm, pick up the melody. It's it's amazing. That means that Coltrane had some you know idea of rhythm that was going on in his mind, and he was able to depart from it and come right back in flawlessly and pick it up again. And it it relates to people in terms of that that we have these rhythms of attention. I mean, there's so many rhythms that we experience, the sleep-wake cycle, we have hormonal rhythms, but we also have rhythms in how our attention works in that there are times we can be focused, and then when our cognitive resources start getting exhausted, then, you know, we can't focus very well. And then, of course, you ideally should step back, take a really nice break, build your resources back up, get refreshed, and then you can get into a, a peak focus state again. And so that's another kind of rhythm. Yeah. So my my candy crush kind of break is is actually not a bad thing, right? I don't have to be all worried about the uh, okay, fantastic. Kurt, you're That's, rationalizing. I, I <laughs> maybe the the work break that comes between my candy crush playing uh, is probably I should reverse that. I should probably maybe switch up the amount of time I spend on both. But that's it. I, and Tim, I know you are itching to even get more and more into some music here. So I'm gonna turn it back to you. Yeah, it's just so, I love the way that you kind of struggled with the musician versus artist question in our speed round, because you really gave it some thought. And I think that that's really cool. But let's say that you don't have a choice. You're going to, you're going on a desert island for a year and you're going to be able to take two musical artist catalogs with you. So everything that they've written, everything they've composed and recorded, you can take with you, but, but you only get two. Which two would you take with you? So I, I am a real fan of jazz. And I would say I would take an older jazz vocalist and a newer jazz vocalist. Oh. Uh, the playlist. Uh, for, for an older jazz vocalist, probably I would take Sarah Vaughn. Oh, and yeah. for a newer vocalist, I would take Samara Joy who um, I just recently heard in a concert is is just phenomenal. She just, you know, her interpretation of older pieces and, and new pieces is just amazing. Very, very creative individual. So I, I would listen to both of those. I love that. I, you just tee up this idea that there's something extra wonderful about music that you can keep coming back to the same song but because of the perspective and the environment that the artist who's performing that grew up in and is, is reflecting, they can bring a different texture and experience to the song that didn't exist before. And, and then as a listener, we get to experience it differently. I think that that's, Kurt and I have talked about bands that, that remake and remix and reapproach their own music, which is fantastic. But but you also get that that same experience with other people, and I I I just love that. So I, I have to check out that new artist. Thank you for the for the heads up. Yeah. So Gloria, last question, uh, and it and it goes back to our tagline, uh, which we do at the end of every episode in our grooving session. We talk 
we talk to people and we say, go out and find your groove. So knowing that groove isn't flow, it is, you know, a larger kind of finding your rhythm in life to a certain degree that's going to be uh, making that life the best life possible, the subjective well-being that you have. Uh, what would be your advice or your thoughts on how people can go out and try to find their groove? So lately, I, I've been thinking a lot about um, nature. And I'm currently uh, living in New York City for, for a short period. And you might think New York City is a concrete jungle. It's noisy. There's, you know, it's dirty. But I also happen to be living near Riverside Park and not far from Central Park. And every day, go out and I, you know, run through Riverside Park. And, you know, it, it really serves to replenish me. And so I started reading about this. And I realized that um, even just 20 minutes in nature can, can de-stress people. I've done a study uh, with colleagues at Microsoft Research, and we found a 20-minute walk outside, and this happened to be a very green campus, lots of nature, uh, people had significantly better divergent thinking, which is coming up with different ideas. And so it really started me thinking that just, ha you know, incorporating into your day a, a short dose of nature can can just really work wonders. Of course, incorporating breaks in general into your day is really important. And in terms of this idea of finding your groove, it's really important to understand when your peak focus times are and to design your day around those times. So usually people completely ignore the idea that they have limited cognitive resources. They set up a to-do list. Here's the task I have to do. Here's the time I'm going to do it. But turn this around, flip it around and think about your resources. And, you know, if you're at your peak at 10 a.m., then plan to do the most important work, the work that requires the most creativity at that time. Take a break, you know, get outside, replenish yourself in nature and come back and, you know, do hard work again. So, you know, be aware of your natural attentional rhythm. Oh, that is absolutely fabulous. And I, Tim, we're going to have to groove on a lot of that because mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, you know, all of the uh, researchers that we love, Danny Kahneman and, and Tversky, and they talk about like a lot of their breakthrough ideas came when they would go for a walk out in, uh, you know, like by Stanford and, yeah. and different things. George Lowenstein talks about this of, you know, he bikes into work every day and kind of just being out in nature and just having that is so, I, I think, overlooked by a lot of people. Um, just, I'm too busy. I don't have time. I can't take 20 minutes to go outside. I need to get this done. And and what you're saying, I think, and what we've, we've heard from others is that, no, actually taking that 20 minutes is actually going to enhance uh, your productivity afterwards. It's going to de-stress you, as you've talked about, all of those fascinating things. So when, when we get ourselves exhausted, we, we get ourselves into a kind of negative spiral. The, 
there's a part of our minds called executive function, which basically is, think of it as the CEO of your mind. It helps you select what to focus on, helps you filter distractions. When we get exhausted, our poor executive function just can't work the, the way we would like it to, and we become more susceptible to distractions. And so the importance of stepping away, you know, being outside, really taking a good break helps our executive function to work better. And then we come back refreshed, better equipped to protect against distractions. Gloria, thank you so much. This has been such a delightful conversation. And thanks for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Welcome to our grooming session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Gloria, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our fully attentive brains. We are just so fully attentive right now, Tim. Right now. Yeah. And now I'm not. But now I am. And now I'm not. Oh, what's that? Shiny now thing. I am. <laughs> Shiny object. There. Squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. But first off, before we begin... Welcome to the Behavioral Groove Studios at Pleasant Avenue. Welcome back, oh, man, Mr. Hulahan. It's been a lot of episodes since we've both been in the same room. Yes, it has. It's pretty crazy. It's crazy. This is well. Welcome back. We're back in the original place where we did our first hundred or so, probably shows. Maybe, maybe you know, somewhere in there, closer to two hundred. Yeah, and lots. Uh, with that, we're 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 here. We're it's, here. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So, all right. Moving on from reminiscing about the old days, back in those days when we had long attention spans. Tim, remember those days? <laughs> it, yeah. Right. You know. Now we just flitter from thing to thing to thing, and we we don't can't focus on anything. I'm sorry. Were you saying something? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So so I think. To start, what I found really interesting about this conversation is that we all know, or at least believe, focus is key to success, right? We have yeah. to be able to focus. We have to be able to point our attention at something and not be looking away from that every 10, 15, 20, 47 seconds as she talks in her research. And no one's arguing that. Gloria is certainly not arguing that. Right. And that this idea that that helps us in getting things done, being efficient, uh, and just being able to, you know, make coherent, you know, cohesive kind of thoughts and other pieces, I think it's really important. And then this idea, though, that, man, we are not as good at attention as we used to be and that there are all of these things that are pulling at us, distracting us, phones, billboards, internet, you know, the way that movies are designed today, all these things that the friction to distraction has been decreased. We also might be suffering from the idea that our attention spans are just fine. Yeah, the, the, we might have this. We might be living in a mythological space in our mind that says everything's okay. 
I, I'm able to adapt. I'm able to do just fine. Yeah. Or in, in fact, I know that the world's changing, but but me, I'm I'm not changing. I, I can focus on whatever I want whenever I focus on it. And and that's kind of a concern for me. Yeah. Well, I, I'm always in a mythological spot in my head. So <laughs> I, the I, hero's journey. <laughs> <laughs> I am the hero of every journey I'm in. And I am always efficient and focused. Yes, no, it's I, you, I think you're right. I think this idea that our brains like to fool us, as we've said many, mm-hmm. many times. And this is one space where they fool us. My, my daughter, who thinks that multitasking is a thing that she should do, like watch a movie, have her phone, and write her essay for school all at the same time. Wow. wow. And I'm going, honey, research shows. And she just rolls her eyes at me. <laughs> of course. Uh, I want to get back to this this key thing though that we've never really been built for long-term focus no that we don't there's not a good evolutionary story around having focus for hours and hours right and gloria long. talks about that she talks about that in her book and i think she talked about it in our conversation that look we 90 minutes is typically kind of a pretty long focus that's session, a long time right? right but after that we typically we need a break Right. This goes back to this flow piece. And I, I loved her conversation now. You know, she's she started off as an artist, right? So mm-hmm. she was she goes, it could be easy to get into flow when you're an artist. It's the stuff you love, it's challenging, it's all the all the things we've talked about flow in the past, right? You uh it it you have a challenge, it's just above, it's not too far challenging, but it's not boring, you know, it's something that interests you and all that. But what I love is the fact that she goes, we live in a world where the vast majority of us aren't going to be able to get into flow, nor nor should we necessarily get right. into flow. Right. That's, that's the key. Nor should we believe that we need to be in flow in order to be productive, in order to get stuff done, in order to re- really at a high level. We don't necessarily need to actually have that that sort of mythical state. And God love the work that Mihai Chinksent Mihai, you know, created around flow. It's fantastic. It's just that it's not the whole story. It's not the holy grail. And, and it doesn't mean that you're living less of a life if you're not in flow. Exactly. Right. This idea that oh, this is how we become super productive and live the best life possible. No, we can be productive. We can do other things. We just have to work within the limits of what the the world is bringing us. And so this was another interesting part. And I don't think we talked about this in the in the interview, but in her book, she gets into this idea of working spheres, this idea oh, yeah, that yeah. You know, within any given work day, um, or any other day. We have projects that we're working on. We have things that we're trying to accomplish. And those often entail many sub kind of operational pieces, right? I'm, I'm project of writing a book. All right. Well, part of that is writing. Part of it is researching. Part of it is editing. Part of it is other. So within that working sphere of writing a book, there's sub spheres, sub spheres, right? Yeah. And so part of what she's talking about is when we're focusing, we only have certain, we have limitations on how much focus we have, but that doesn't mean that they 
can't happen within the same working sphere. In other words, I can write for 30 minutes and then I can go and I can edit that writing. And those are two different processes. So it's changing mm-hmm. the focus, yeah. but it is, so it's giving my brain a switch. In a beneficial way. In a beneficial way. And then I can go in and do research and then get totally lost in research and, you know, dwell off onto, you know, who the, the Titanic sunk on this day and yeah. whatever it is. And then you get totally lost and get distracted. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the spheres thing is really Im- important, and uh, we, I think we should get back to that when we get back into tips here here later on. But um, I'm sorry, it, what were you saying? I, I was yeah, thinking of about. Course, of course, you know this also this shows up near Iel's work. You know, in, in indistractable. You know, he he re, he emphasized this idea that distraction isn't new. Right. And that was, this is interesting because this is slightly different than Gloria's take on my, in my opinion, but we had Niran and, you know, he was talking about this idea that, look, we've been distracted throughout the ages, you know, that now, yeah, there might be more things that distract us, Mm -hmm. but this isn't a new phenomena. And what I think Gloria is saying though, is that our attention span is actually decreasing so that work that we talked about in the in the opening moving from 152 seconds down to 75 down to 47 yeah which you know and that's different and it reminded me of um a book uh the shallows it's by nicholas carr i read it a number of years ago where his premise is this idea that because we're being raised and live in this world that has all of these digital functions that are um, changing the way that our brain is actually wired. And I think there's something, I don't know, I'm I'm not an expert in this area, but there's something to that. There is something to this idea that we are changing the way our brains operate, yeah. Which is scary and exciting at the same time. It is, it's various, yeah. Uh, okay, should we talk about some tips? Yeah. So how do we how do we overcome this attention uh, disorder that we have? Well, how about if we start with getting a feel for who we are? Know thyself. <laughs> One of the things we keep coming back to. Well, like figure out what it because we the, uh, just to remind everybody, ninety nine point nine nine percent of our DNA is the same from person to person. There's a lot that we have in common with each other. But that that one one hundredth of one percent can provide a lot of variation. Skin color, eye color, hair, all kinds of things, including we're going to be influenced by all the variables in our world. So how you grew up is going to influence what works for you best. Yeah. Like, and are you able to hold attention? There are people that, you know, have chronic kind of ADHD. Right. And, and, and there's a, that's a spectrum. And there are certain people that are on one end of that spectrum and people on the other. And where do you fall in? Understand where you who, fall in. Who you are. Yeah. And, and within what context, right? There are times where I could do really good at focus and other times where I know I bounce around. Like mm-hmm. the, 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 again, I cannot start doing social media because I will, 
I, I, I can't say I'm going to just do this for a short period of time. Oh, interesting. Because I just get caught up and it goes bounce, 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 bounce. And next thing I know, maybe that is focused because I'm focused on that for hours. Well, you, you, well, you are. <laughs> my, so my approach, I, I, when I'm aware of not being able to focus on anything longer than just a few minutes, then I set the timer. Yeah. It's like, okay, 10 minutes, just, just get to the 10 minute mark on this. Um, and just get to 10 minutes. If I can just get to 10 minutes, then I'm on to something else. Then I can click the repeat, start another 10 minutes and, and go to something else. And that helps. I can get, I can be more productive. And when I'm really in the flow, then I said, I'll set the timer for 60 minutes. Yeah. Because it, you got to get up, you got to move around, you got to, I, I need to change my view, my focal plane. If, I mean, there's, there's research even just saying, take a look, you know, 20 feet away, as opposed right. to looking at your screen. Do that every, what, what is it, 20 minutes, right? Maybe it's 20, 20 minutes, minutes yeah. 20 minutes you know, away. So there are lots of those habits, those routines that we can do, setting up specific timers, like you said, making sure that you are in a certain room without distractions. If you, you can, know, yep. if that is a piece, right? Set aside a certain work area that has limited availability. Make sure that you, you know, have a room where you go to focus in on the certain things. George R. R. Martin, uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. He writes on this old Commodore computer. He what? writes his books because it doesn't have internet. That's crazy. So he doesn't get distracted away from that. He so. changed his environment to accommodate his particular work habits. And right. Needs. So he understands yeah. that. Yeah. One other piece, and this is the piece going back to what Gloria said, that goals are the best shield against distraction. Love that. So yes. one tip is like, but the thing is, and, and I think this is important, is that those goals have to be top of mind, that they cannot be, you know, that that goal that I set at the beginning of the year, and it's now November, and I'm yeah, trying to remember that goal. what it was. I well, that's remember. not helping me in my focus, unless I keep remembering that goal and taking those larger keystone goals, as, as we call them when we do brain shift and some of the other work that we've done on goals and translating those down into those uh, weekly and daily tasks. And if, as, as Gloria talks about, we have task goals and emotional goals, and both are important, yeah. but they have to be top of mind. So yeah. how do you set those up? How do you use tools that will keep that goal in front of you that says, yes, I need to write this book, or yes, I need to do X. And that way I'm going, yeah, I'm not going to go out on the internet and just be distracted. I'm not going to, you know, lose focus and look at that pretty butterfly as it flies by. Okay. Two things on that. I loved, loved, loved that conversation with her uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. The goal and goal setting conversation, um, the the fact that she invoked William James was really cool. Oh yeah. And I just want to say shameless plug brain shift does a great, the brain shift journal does a fantastic job of bringing that attention to you. Just, and uh, again, I'm a morning user. Now it is possible. Some people are using brain shift at the end of the day. It's possible, but, but yeah, but like at the beginning of the day, it helps set up. What am I focused on? And just bringing it into my attention for that day really helps yeah really really helps so 
Yeah. Well, thank you for the plug. I mean, that was the design. That was well, how yeah. we yeah. we looked at that and said, okay, let's take keystone goals, break those down into your weekly goals, and then every day you can set up what are the things that what do I need to get done today, and you can focus in on that. So, all okay. right. I'd say uh, lastly, I just want to do a quick shout out um, to uh, Gloria's comments about self awareness. You know, uh, this is. It's if you're not knowing yourself, then just think about what are the habits and routines. The George R. R. Martin. What is the environment that you're working? What's the context? Create a context where you can be more productive. And it's not so much about limiting. It might be about limiting distractions, but it might be just having a tool to deal with them. And for me, that you know, a timer is. Yeah. Yeah. So find what works for you guys. So you know, can I just say? You mentioned the soundtrack to Lost Boys. Yeah. So there's a couple things that are really noteworthy about that soundtrack. Okay. One of my favorites. Yeah. So it's got Roger Daltrey. Yeah. Covering Elton John's song, Don't Let the Sun Go Down. Yeah. Which you don't hear anywhere else in the world, basically, but in that movie. And so it's fantastic right and then there's another cover song that i think was really great and that was echo and the bunnymen covered the doors the doors yeah people are strange oh that is a one of the best versions it of that song ever version. yeah and then there's yeah. i can't i don't remember who the guy is he plays a saxophone and it was the one hit he had but uh, again just that that soundtrack is what made the movie a lot for me anyway so. yeah so, all right well I think we have probably passed the point of holding our listeners' attention. Maybe. Uh, what, what, what do you think, Tim? <laughs> I'm sorry. Were you saying something, Kurt? <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. Funny. Okay. Right. I agree that this is probably a good time to wrap it up. And we are extremely thankful to Gloria for joining us and sharing her insight into this incredibly important issue that we're facing as a society, as a world. Yeah. And if you found this interesting or useful, please share it with a friend or make sure that you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast services. We are always thankful to all of our listeners out there, and we are striving to keep your attention through fun and insightful conversations with really bright and interesting people. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or email. Just email me. Send me an email, Tim at Behavioral Groups. Not a super difficult thing. Just send me an email. Let us know. There you go. Yeah. Send that email to Tim, not me. Send it to Tim because my attention span, I'll be, I'll I'll forget about it. He's going to that so with that we hope you are paying attention this week to how you can go out and find your group